hello and welcome. Uh, so this is Joe McCarthy of the Irish Abroad website. I'm joined uh, by Mark Kennedy from the Hawkeye Psychic. And together we're going to be taking a look back at the, the last 10 years of Irish international football over the next few episodes. So we're going to start tonight with the 2010 up until 2013, which was kind of you know the highs and really the lows of Giovanni Trapattoni's reign. Um, as if we look back at the way things were at the beginning of uh, the current decade, uh, the Irish team had failed to qualify for the World Cup in 2010, but this was due to the incidents, shall we say, in Saint-Denis in the Stade de France where Thierry Henry handled the ball, which I think gave the team uh, a boost in the public consciousness. Results, while not bad, hadn't been great over the course of the, the qualifying campaign. There was a lot of draws and we realistically, we perhaps achieved, finished where we should have. Uh, we beat Cyprus, we beat Georgia, teams we would have expected to beat anyway. But I think coming on the back of Steve Staunton's reign, this is all the, the fans were really looking for. So finishing second in the group, uh, we went to, we awaited the, the results of the draw and were drawn uh, against France, who, while still a, a strong international side, had perhaps fallen from the, the heights of uh, earlier in the decade. Um, Mark, uh, do you remember much about the game? Oh God, um, I, I try. I tried to forget that Henri moment. To be perfectly honest with you, Joe. But in terms of the two legs, I mean, our performance in the Saint Denis, I thought it was absolutely exceptional given the circumstances. That first leg in uh, Lansdowne Road, Viva. Now, um, it was really flat display. France were well in control, and you know, brought the lead back with them to Paris. But I thought to a man on the on the night in Saint Denis, we were just absolutely outstanding. You know, really. Could have, we brought it extra time, but could be an argument to be said there, Joel. You were in the crowd, uh, that we could have won it in 90 minutes for sure. Um, you know, a really, really top quality. I mean, the leaders really stepped up. Che Given, John O'Shea, right down the middle, Glenn Whelan, uh, Robbie Keane. We just, you know, we literally, uh, we really did have a quality look about us, uh, particularly on the road. I mean, that was one thing about Trapp's era. Defensively, we were more, most, more than likely very solid and again, really did kind of, uh, expose a few French vulnerabilities, particularly defensively there as well. So again, that Henri handball, you know, living in for me. But as you said yourself, Joe, I think the result really did give, a, if you could call it a morale boosting kind of, um, for the national psyche really on Republic of Ireland's performance in soccer and some greater things to happen. Yeah, I think not not just nationally but internationally as well. Um I remember in uh was it ITV's coverage of the World Cup, uh James Corden gave uh the Republic of Ireland a seat uh at the in the at the groups at in their in their coverage studio uh because, you know, they felt that we should have been there. I'm not saying we could have we should have been there, but you know, to lose the 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 right or the the opportunity to go there uh, fairly uh, stung quite uh, quite deeply, um, and I think it took a long time to shake that off. But like I said, the other side of it was the the performance on the night, perhaps the best performance of Trapattoni's reign, uh, really kind of you know led into the next two years uh, under Trapattoni. Now, the first game of twenty ten. Um, was a fairly forgettable friendly against Barcelona. But uh, one of the things that I actually do remember about it was it was James McCarthy's international debut. Uh, he came on as a late sub, and you know there had been rumours at the time that he was thinking of switching to, to Scotland. This put, obviously put paid to that. Um, and we uh, we faced into the into the, the qualifiers in September. Uh, in reasonable form, I, th I felt. You know, we'd beaten uh, World Cup finalists Paraguay and Algeria in uh, the RDS Arena. Uh, we did lose uh, the first game back at Aviva Stadium against Argentina, but it, it was 
you know, I think the, as far as I remember, the, their goal was fairly contentious at the time, but nobody left feeling that we'd been, we'd been cheated out of our results. And, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, Messi was giving a standing ovation, uh, when he was substituted. I don't think he played too well. I think people just really liked Messi. Um, so the first game in the qualifiers was away to Armenia. We won 1-0, uh, with a, a, a goal from Keith Fahey. The performance, not, Great, but it was kind of felt that it was a result that we might not have gotten under previous managers. Uh, and then the first game, the first home qualifier, uh, was against Andorra. I remember actually Andorra scored a phenomenal opener right before half time. Um, tried to lead the, 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 at least the people sitting around me with a, a round of applause for the striker. I don't think there was too many endorns at the game, and he probably still tells his kids about the, the, the goal that he scored and probably his grandchildren as well. The first real test though was against, uh, Russia in early October, uh, who beat us 3-2. Now, they were 3-0 up in cruising and I think playing, their midfield three was playing around, uh, Paul Green and Glenn Whelan in central midfield. But we did pull two goals back and Perhaps could have gotten a draw out of it. I I didn't. I don't remember thinking that uh, a draw would have been, you know, undeserved. Um, and I think the two because the two goals came in the second half. The feeling in the crowd was that you know we could have gotten something here. The team were improving. Russia are a good side. You know they don't. They tend to not lose qualifiers. Um, and I think yeah, like I said, the the two goals at the end of the game gave the crowd a bit of a boost and something to talk about. And we were kind of basking in the, the, the afterglow of the two strikes rather than, you know, fretting about the results. Uh, you know, this was followed up with a, a 1-1 draw into, uh, in, with Slovakia in Zil, excuse me, in, in, uh, Zilnia. Uh, uh, but we were ended the year, you know, looking good, uh, uh, in the group. And, you know, a lot of people were talking about qualification. Uh, for the finals in 2012. Um, so what, Mark? I mean, after those, those, the four, the first four qualifiers. Um, what? I mean, did you think what were the positives? Did you think that the team had improved? Do you think like where did you think the direction the team was going in? Yeah, well. I thought for the the initial results in 2012, uh, for me it was all positive. I mean, the Russian result aside, I thought Russia just gave an exhibition on the night, you know, of real kind of clinical counter-attacking football against us. You may argue that our kind of central midfield was a little bit open and more exposed than it should typically be because, you know, Trapattoni and his, you know, conscious detail to defensive shape. We were definitely, as you rightly said, Joe, caught a little bit on the hop, particularly with the three-man midfielder Russia on on that day. But you can take nothing away from the Republic of Ireland, their their fight, their you know spirit, uh, teamwork. Again, uh, even going back to that first fixture in uh, Yerevan in Armenia, it, you know th- these places in Eastern Europe, they're a very tough places to go. And again, for Kifahi to come up in the 76 uh, minute to score that winner, I mean, it really was the momentum boost that we required heading into that Aviva Stadium uh, fixture against Andorra. And I mean, the Andorra result really, you know, it's you know, you know, what do you say about that? You know. You're damned if you are, damned if you don't in terms of the performance. Yeah. I thought the key result here uh, was the Slovakian result away in Zilnia. I mean, we'll find out in due course about Slovakia next next year, but it's always a tough, tough place to go. Um, very physical, very imposing side, and uh, Sean St. Ledger's early strike, you know, one all draw in Slovakia. One of our kind of key opponents in that group, it really did set us on very well. So overall, I was very optimistic in the overall sense of the qualification. Some kind of key games there, particularly that road trip to Slovakia, really would set up set us up well for the following year. Yeah. I actually, th- I didn't realise at the time, and I, I don't think anyone did, was that the, the win in Armenia was probably, uh, was a lot more important than at uh, in, at the at the end of the tournament, at the end of the qualifying series, than it was the beginning. Uh, it was the opening game, so I don't think people put too much uh, faith in anything other than the result. But it turned out at the end that we were the only team to win in Armenia, 
Russia got a draw, but Slovakia, Macedonia, and Andorra were all beaten and beaten well. Uh, so I, I think that was probably the peak of that Armenian team. They've, they've fallen away again um, in, in international football, but they had a they actually finished third in the group. You know they they did have some fairly creditable results. They look, they didn't beat uh, Russia or Ireland, but you know they they beat Macedonia home and away and Adora home and away and uh, drew drew with Slovakia and beat them at home. So you know it was a strong side. But, you know, I think we were, we depended a little bit on some of their, their results that they got as well. So, moving on from 2010, if we move into 2011 and the, the much maligned Nations Cup, uh, which was originally designed as a tournament between Ireland, Wales and Scotland, um, but only ever survived one iteration, uh, held, the one that was held in Dublin. So we opened with victory, a 3-0 win over, over Wales, uh, which also saw the debuts of Kieran Clark, Mark Wilson, excuse me, Mark Wilson and Seamus Coleman. Um, and I remember a, a phenomenal goal from, uh, from Darren Gibson. Uh, later in the tournament, uh, like there was, I think the idea behind the tournament was good. You know, it gave the three, uh, or sorry, the four, ta- four teams, I, mi- I missed out on Northern Ireland, um, uh, a chance as competitive, to a, a competitive international football to a certain level that they might not have gotten. I think we kind of see something of it in the, the, the Nations League uh, at the moment. Uh, but the implementation of it, the marketing of it was just, was just terrible. Uh, there was, you know, crowds of less than a thousand at, Avi- uh, at Aviva Stadium. Um, I think the the side that the North sent to play in uh, in May were possibly the worst team I've ever seen in international football. Um, you know, the five nil win uh, was remarkable, maybe only for uh, for Simon Cox, uh, Stephen Ward, and David Ford making an international debut and uh, Cox and, and Ward both scoring on their international debut. Um, but what it did give the team, like the, the one little win over Scotland gave the team a boost. You know, we hear or we hear uh, club managers talking about winning like, a trophy like the League Cup, you know, brings can, you know, can bring a team together. You know, it's a trophy, it's a medal, it's something you put up on the mantelpiece and can, you know, can, can result in uh, league titles. Uh, so we were both at that, the, what was effectively the, the final against Scotland. <clears throat> um, what, uh, what was your impression of the tournament? Yeah, I mean, it was very underwhelming. Uh, for the initial stages, uh, particularly that 24th of May, uh, 2011 fixture with Northern Ireland was just, oh, it was just pitiful uh, from start to finish, really. You know, real classic end-of-season squad that Northern Ireland assembled. Um, but that 29th of May game with Scotland, it had a real kind of cup final feel. I know there was 17,000, the official attendance, but um, it felt to me that was a real proper cup final. I mean, Scotland brought their their, their excellent legendary support as always, the Tartan Army, and really I thought it was a real good cup final. And, you know, that final whistle, Joe, I mean, you know, celebrations, there's a cup to be won, and, you know, you saw likes of Robbie King, Damien Duff, all the guys literally going around the pitch parading a trophy, and I mean, it really did, you know, the success. You could you could feel this in the air was that there was something a bit special going to happen with this Irish team going forward. I mean, Cups and Republic of Ireland don't really come hand in hand. So, again, it's a classic opportunity to get into a position where you're in a final and win some silverware. And, you know, Republic of Ireland duly duly delivered. I mean, it's a shame with the Nations Cup because it could have been such a good competition and particularly to give, you know, the Republics, the Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, the opportunity to blood new players. But again, it, as you said yourself, Joe, uh, quite rightly, it was just the marketing. Everything was completely off. And you, you just wonder with some of um, the countries that were involved, Wales, Northern Ireland particularly, the, their interest in this competition. You know, it was just, there was no real incentives there for them. But again, take nothing away. It's, it's silverware at the end of the day. And, you know, it provided a bit of a springboard and confidence going forward to the rest of the qualification. Yeah. And I think, 
you know, the the biggest result of that year was the nil nil result in Russia, uh, which you know in, in which came not too, only a couple of months after that uh, that that win in, in the the Nations Cup. Um, you know, we were we went on a phenomenal run of uh, clean sheets as well. You know, there was nine go- games in a row where we didn't concede. Um, and I, I think it did come, part of it did come from that that success. You know, uh, the team realised that, you know, we're, we're building something here. We've won something now. Uh, now let's, you know, let's, let's, let's go from there. Um, and, you know, the nil-nil results in Russia um, was basically what got us to the to uh, second place in the group and into the into the playoffs. Uh, our last two games were at home against uh, Andorra and Armenia, which we both really, which we think we we felt we were going to win no matter what. You know, we were never going to lose. I sorry, the Andorra game was actually was actually away. It wasn't at home. Indeed, uh, yeah. game was at home. Uh, we never, we were never going to lose to Andorra, and we felt like a team like Armenia we should beat at home. Uh, even though that they, they, like I said, they did have a particularly strong qualifying campaign. Uh, the goalkeeper, you know, was sent off, and I think that really decided the results. But then after the draw, you know, we drew Estonia in the playoffs. Uh, I think. There's been a little bit of revisionism around the draw. People saying, "Oh, we were lucky to get Estonia. They were the the worst team in the in the the, the second seeds or the, the lower seeds or whatever you want to call it." Uh, but the fact, I think, that overlooks uh, one you know, really important fact was that we had played well enough across the tournament, across the qualifiers, to get into that top seeds to be a top seed for the for the playoffs. You know and Against France, France were the top seed, and we were unseeded. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to argue that Estonia were the weakest team of that of that uh, unseeded group. It was Turkey, Bosnia, Montenegro, and Estonia. I think Bosnia were the ones I really wanted to avoid, um, uh, but Estonia were were the weakest group and possibly one of the worst results uh, when they lost to the the Faroe Islands, who were being managed by Brian Carr at the time. Um, and then in the playoff itself. Everything fell apart for them uh, in Tallinn. The two players sent off. Uh, Ireland won four nil, um, and the tie, the the playoff itself, was pretty much decided after the first game. And uh, the which meant that the the playoff, the second leg of the playoff at home was kind of subdued. Um, we never felt like we were going to lose. Uh, the game finished one all, but you know we had qualified. It was the first time in. 10 years that the Ireland team would be making an appearance at an international tournament. Um, if you think of where we were when Trapattoni had taken over only uh, a little over three years earlier, you know, we were kind of a shambles, really. You know, the, we coming off the back of, you know, one of the, probably what will go down as the worst result in Irish football history, uh, losing 5-2 to Cyprus. To qualifying for a tournament, uh, and I don't think anyone would have believed you when you said that this was this was what we would have to look forward to in the next three years. Um, no, yeah, yeah, no, no exactly, yeah, exactly, Joe. I mean, you know, that five-two loss in Nicosia that really does stick in the in my head. I was living in Boston at the time, pitched my twenty dollars to see Santa Sports and see that display and. Then to kind of transform that with, you know, kind of, a, I thought it was a party atmosphere, you know, for that Republic Ireland Estonia game and the Aviva, you know, I mean, the 4 0 win away from home in Estonia. Granted, the opposition, as you say, may have been a little bit limited, but again, the, the just comprehensive nature of the result, take that tie out of Estonia's hands in that first leg. Uh, you have to give the squad massive credit on that, and, you know, it was a massive turnaround, you know, Trapattoni really. You know, again, it's all the organisational skills. His years of experience managing various teams in various countries really came to the fore. You know, and even going back to that Russia Republic Ireland game, Richard done on that day uh, in Moscow. My God, 
the guy was a man mountain on the day yeah. himself Shea given and defensively it was just you know you could see the momentum you could see the organisation you could see the teamwork the cohesion everything was there so yeah from that Nicosia that hot night in Nicosia to you know qualifying for 2012 Euros it was just a remarkable turnaround and all credit to the guys yeah I think unfortunately what we didn't know at the time was that was about as good as it was going to get um um and things, while not going downhill straight away, uh, took a turn for the worst. Took a turn for the worst, really, uh, at the tournament itself. You know, I, I think it's important to to remember that we were unbeaten going into the tournament. You know, the last game before uh, Euro 2012 was a friendly against Hungary in uh, absolute monsoon conditions, and we were unbeaten at that point after that game and, and that nil-nil draw. Uh, for 14 games, um, you know, going back to a friendly against Uruguay, um, 18 months earlier. So then came the group, uh, in Poland, the group games in Poland. Uh, I, I think the, the national opinion at the time was that if we go, if we're still in contention after the Spain game, we might get something against Italy. You know, we felt we could get a result against Croatia. Spain were the best team in the world at that time. Nobody was questioning that. I think nobody no one expected us to get anything out of that. But a lot of people thought that, you know, going into Italy, going into the, the, the final game of the group, you know, if we need a win, we could probably, we might get one. But it didn't go like that. Um... Croatia scored early and Sean St. Ledger equalised. Uh, we were lucky enough to be right behind the goal when he did it. Um, and, uh, one of the, one of the standout memories of that incident was that the Croatian fans had the same whistle, uh, that the referee did. So they blew it and there was a, a second or two where people were going, is it a goal or is there actually like a free out? Or what's going on? And then we realised that the, the referee was pointing back to the centre circle, he's indicating a goal, and then you know celebrations ensued. So our our first goal in you know an international tournament since uh, Robbie Keane scored uh, a penalty against Spain in uh, in two thousand and two. Um, but then, well, Croatia proved their class. Uh, by scoring twice, um, what do you? Uh, what did you think after that game? I mean, was this? Do you think the group was over? Do you think we still had a chance? Um, or was that really the end of it? No, I thought we still had a remote chance of that against Italy. I mean, I, I was completely kind of blanking the, Sp- the Spanish game out of the equation. I was hoping that we could get maybe a, a draw and against the Croats and then maybe lead it up to our Italian kind of uh, fixture to maybe get some, uh, you know, a much-needed win. But, yeah, that Croatia game, we were there. I mean, uh, behind the goals, St. Ledger's equaliser, amazing. But, again, I think we kind of saw the real emergence of one Luka Modric on the on the day. We talked about that Russian three-man midfield, but Modric, for me, was an absolute conductor of that Croat midfield. He literally had likes of Keith Andrews, Dan Whelan, they were just literally chasing shadows at the time here to just, you know, trying to combat Modric. And when Croats had the likes of Jelovic and Mandzukic, I mean, their movement, you know, running down the channels, they were quite a big physical side Croats as well, Joe, weren't they? I mean, you know, they they had the footballing technical ability, but they were more than able to compete with Ireland, particularly in the air. So... Um, again, we were a bit disappointed after that Croat game. Again, the Spanish game in Gdansk was just an exhibition from it from Spain. They were just at the height of their powers at that stage, and then we kind of came to the Italian game, and you know we had a remote chance, and we were depending on results again, depending on you know Spain to do us a favour against Croatia. But when Casano scored that goal just before half time, you could feel the whole stadium in Poznan just literally deflate in the Irish end, and uh, you know unfortunately with Balotelli in 90 minutes, it was all. Over and done with well before that. Yeah, I do remember when Balotelli came on, he was booed by 
some of the fans that were around me, and I was wondering, was that because of his, his club allegiances? He was still with Manchester City at the time. And all I could think was, why are you booing him? He's definitely going to score now. Um, and, you know, it was a good finish. He held off John O'Shea, who's, you know, which is no mean feat in itself. And, and, and you know, it was, it, was a, it was a really good finish. Um, I do remember at the end of the game, uh, this, the Italian keeper, um, you know, the, the team was the captain on the day. And he, he might have been the captain for the tournament, actually. Uh, the team were walking off, but he called them back. And he made them applaud to the fans. Now, maybe he was applauding he was the Italian fans in the in the crowd, but because it was a majority of Irish fans, it, it looked like he was um, he was applauding the Irish fans, which I thought was a was a, a touch of class for him. And you know, four years later, he was celebrating with the with Martin O'Neill and uh, and Roy Keane after beating Italy, uh, which was uh, which is strange. Uh, strange thing to see when a, one of the opposition players celebrating a, uh, a loss, uh, in effect. But the Spain game in particular, which I had to, to write about recently, and I subjected myself to the well, they're they're called highlights, but they're you know it depends which side of the fence you're you're sitting on. Um, uh, and really, it kind of exposed. The, not just the team, but the tactics, the the formation, everything. I think that the fan, some fans had been complaining about for a while. I think the results masked some of Trapattoni's team selections and tactics. Like I said, we'd been unbeaten for fourteen games, um, but we hadn't really dominated, and like some, like we never beat anybody. Um, ranked ahead of us, uh, which is something that, you know, uh, Trapatoni never managed. He never, to, to beat a team, uh, ranked higher than us in a, in an international game. And for Spain, it was, uh, it was a training session. I think the, the biggest, uh, shock in the whole game was that it was only 1-0 at half time. Um, and the second half, it was just, you know, it was a training exercise for, which, what was the best team in the world at the time. Um, I don't think that the fans' relationship with the manager ever really recovered from that. You know, there was... You know, a lot of people talk about the sing-song at the end of the game. And I think internationally, again, it's kind of... It brought the Irish team and the Irish fans to an international attention. You know, that the... There's the story that in Germany the the commentators stopped talking about the game for ten minutes so that people at home could hear what they were what what they were hearing in the stadium. You know, Roy Keane complained about the that you know why are the fans singing? You know, when the team were being so you know comprehensively uh, outplayed, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't have done that. But I think it was that's when the the rot had set in. And I don't think it ever really uh, recovered from that. Yeah, no, I, I think the you know there was a, a, I suppose a growing sense of frustration as well, considering the Croat game and the opening game, how we were unfortunately so kind of exposed, particularly in our central midfield. You know, I think we were kind of resolute. Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, with a four-four-two uh, formation, and I feel yeah. sorry a little bit for the likes of Keith Andrews, Glenn Whelan. You know, they had a massive ground to cover and particularly yeah. that Croat game, and then, unfortunately, my bad memory of that Spanish game wasn't even at the start of the game. It was the warm-ups, uh, when we saw the likes of Keith Andrews, uh, Glenn Whelan, the guys going through their you know 50-yard sprints, and then you saw the Spanish guys, and it was all technical football. The little five-yard burst of pace, you know, the slide rule pass, to see the likes of Iniesta, Xavi, David Silva. There, It was just a joy to watch the warm-up, and you considered... The two sides, and uh, you'd be really kind of struggling, you know, you know, from an Ireland perspective. There was no real ball work; it was just literally run, 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 warm ups. And again, Spain let their football do the talking, really. And you could see from Ireland, you know, that early goal was huge. But I, I thought Spain were very much in second gear for an awful lot of that opening period, and then when they decided to let loose in the second half, just to kind of get the the scoreline going a bit, you know, we just had absolutely no answers. But again. 
it was all down to the central midfield area, getting very exposed between our central midfield and our centre halves. And you know, it, I'd you know, I think you're spot on there, Joe. Really on that Spanish performance. Again, the Italian game, you know, there's an awful lot of heart. You know, you can never argue with the guys' team spirit, but you could see the holes. The holes were there, and again, our kind of end product as well, final ball. There was a precious few chances being created as well in the tournament as well. It just seemed to be that we were in completely in a defensive shell for the majority of the tournament. The 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 four three three formation, I think that um, we were probably most familiar with here from uh, Chelsea under Mourinho. Well. I say four three three. It was more like four three two one. Really, uh, was very much in vogue at the, the at the time. And we under Trapattoni, we just seemed to be stuck in four four two. And even like the the complaints were not just that the formation um, was predictable, but the squad was formation was predictable. The starting eleven was predictable. The tactics were predictable, and it. it you know, it it just seemed to be that if you wanted to get into the team, um, you had to be a square peg that would fit into a square hole in the side. And if you weren't, well, then you weren't going to get picked. Um, one of the one of the arguments or one of the complaints that you know didn't really come around until about a year later was that uh, Seamus Coleman wasn't in the squad. But I think what people forget is that at the time. Seamus Coleman wasn't even in the Everton team. Um, uh, he hadn't started a Premier League game since I think the previous December. Um, he hadn't. I think he'd only completed 90 minutes in two games uh, that year. It was like from from January on. So yeah, he didn't go to 2000 to Euro 2012, but he didn't deserve to go to Euro 2012. Uh, the big the big controversy when it came to the squad selection was that. Kevin Foley was initially picked and then later dropped, and Paul McShane was brought in. The reason being that McShane could cover two positions, uh, fullback and centre half, whereas Foley was uh, very much a, a, a fullback. Um, and a lot of people felt sorry for him, and I think his career probably never really recovered from that either. Um, so after the tournament, uh well the first game was a uh, forgettable nil nil friendly against Serbia um but World Cup 2014 started with a a 2-1 win against Kazakhstan you know our first game against Kazakhstan ever actually and uh again people said it could be like the Armenia game it could be a game that in uh 12 months time we can look back and say this is you know this is was an important Win on the road, uh, on the on the way to the World Cup, um, but it didn't really turn out like that. Um, there was we were lucky. We were yeah. lucky that day as well, Joe, weren't we? I mean, Kazakhstan were full value for the one nil um, halftime lead, and it was only I think Robbie Keane's penalty. I think it was really at the end yeah. that kind of sparked uh, you know a bit of life in the Republic of Ireland charges. It was a very flat performance, if I remember right. Yeah, it was. I think Kevin Doyle's introduction, um, you know, he uh, he was what changed the game. But you know, he played for the last few minutes, and James McLean, I think, voiced his uh, his displeasure at being left on the substitute bench on Twitter after the game, um, and you know that, that kind of came back to haunt him. Um, but the next game was a friendly against one of, uh, against Oman in Craven Cottage, and it's I was uh, I I was at that again and. You know, we saw Robbie Brady make his debut. We saw David Myler make his debut. We saw Alex Pierce make his debut. Um, and suddenly it seemed that, okay, maybe we're not, maybe there's, there's some hope. There's some players coming through that look good. There's some players coming through that look creative and they look different to what we've been, been used to. Maybe, you know, maybe things can, maybe things can recover. Unfortunately, the next game was against Germany. Now, <laughs> Germany were on their way to becoming world champions um, in typical, uh, stereotypical, you might even say, uh, efficiency. It was four years ahead of when they planned to become world champions. And we were crushed at home 6-1 by, uh, I don't, I don't stop an international side, uh, you know, possibly the equal of the, the Spain team that we had faced uh, only four months earlier. 
uh, it was Ireland's worst home defeat. Um, and I remember, and I was actually really happy that we got one at the end. I was happy and disappointed because I was disappointed because we didn't deserve to score in that game. But I was really happy because it was Andy Keogh who scored. And I actually, I, I liked him as a player. He's one of the, he's one of the few players that seems to enjoy playing football. I'm not saying other players don't, but he just seems to be really, really happy to play international football. And, you know, so that was three fairly serious losses in the, um, in the space of four months against teams that nobody expected us to, to get a result against, but teams that we were expected to at least try to put an effort in. You know, I think, you know, a lot of the cliches are, 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 are going to be thrown up. You know, heart, passion, desire, but we just looked lost. Um, these teams had put, uh, finances into developing their U team, into developing techniques, uh, to, uh, advancing the tactics, not just for their national team, but, you know, it seemed that they were, their influence was being felt everywhere, you know, right across the game. And we were still playing, you know, football that was 20 years out of date. Um, I, yeah, that, that Germany game especially, it did feel like the end was coming soon. Um, but, you know, we went to the Faroe Islands, we won 4-1 in a game that no one really cared about, to be honest. I mean, kind of similar to Andorra or San Marino or, or any of the other minnows. They're games that you can't really win. You know, if you crush them, people say, well, you were supposed to crush them. If you draw or lose, then you know it's it's a uh, it's a tragedy. Um, so the and then the final game of the year uh, was another loss against Greece, uh, where uh, uh, Samra scored. Um, again, it was just another loss, and I think it the, it felt at the end of that game that the the life had really had been sucked out of the the fan base, um, and then we we were. Wondering if we had anything to look forward to uh, in 12 months' time, would we go to the World Cup in 2014? No, absolutely, uh, Joe. Um, I think, you know, there was an awful lot of negativity, particularly at that start of the campaign, if I remember rightly. Even that Kazakhstan performance, even though you can applaud for right now the teamwork, the spirit, to even salvage a 2 1 win. I remember the press reaction to that was very much, very, you know, it was almost shameful to be honest, you know, the, the, the criticism that was being levelled at the players. And really, that kind of negative vibe really did lead into that Germany game. And let's let's be brutally honest, as you said, Germany were just class act. I thought Tony Cruz on the night was just, you know, it was, a star was born that night from my in my eyes. Uh, but yeah, it was just, uh, you know, the manager, he was incredibly loyal to an awful lot of uh, the, the squad that got him into the 2012. But He's maybe resistance to change an awful lot. I, I do recall, you know, after before the Euro 2012, you remember there was a story that was floating around in Poland where he was at they were at some team retreat in some Italian village. Yeah. And apparently he was talking to the elders of the village that the only reason that the Republic of Ireland were there was because of him. I don't know if there if that's true or not, but it just felt you know that teamwork, you know that cohesion, that togetherness didn't seem to be there. Uh, from that tournament on so it's uh, again some players I think probably did fall out with Trapattoni as well just in terms of game time I think in the likes of Kifahi people like that I know Kifahi was hauled off after 51 minutes of that Germany game seemed to be a bit of a scapegoat on the night and I think maybe it was a selection that Trapattoni made <clears throat> to try to appease maybe some of the, the local Irish media so but again yeah. the, the, end, the, end, the end was certainly not here Joe I mean even that Faroe Islands performance it was pretty blustery windy conditions if memory serves me right in Faroes but again you know and and pretty much an average performance all you could say really was Jonathan Walters really was prominent scored scored a goal there in 53 minutes but again nothing really to get excited about really continuity you know passing football was pretty limited you know an awful lot of kind of direct um, aerial ball in um, so again the omens weren't great going into 2013 yeah, I think a lot of the the criticism that's still uh, level against the side, um, you know, was was evident 
you know, what is six years ago now, um, that the, there was, we were playing long ball football, everyone else was playing shorts, passing game, uh, we were playing two in centre midfield, people were playing three in centre midfield, uh, we were, we were still over reliant on Robbie Keane and, Look, Robbie Keane will probably go down, will go down as one of the best footballers this country's ever produced, if not the best. Uh, but he was getting older and it didn't look like we were going to score if he didn't, if he didn't score, we didn't look like we were going to score. Uh, so as 2012, uh, became 2013, uh, the results, the performances kind of stayed the same. Uh, we beat Poland at home in February. This was followed by two draws against Sweden and Austria. Um, and that Austria game, uh, at home, you know, it was, it finished 2-2, but we come from 1-0 down to lead 2-1. And I remember Shane Long had a, a, a shot saved at 2-1 that would have made it, that would have made it 3-1. And I think we would have gone on to win that game. But again, and Austria weren't a good side. They weren't a bad side. They weren't, but they just weren't a good side. So for them to come back and get a a draw, it just felt like this was this wasn't good. This wasn't going to end well. Like there was no there was no improvement. There was no improvement in tactics. There was no improvements in the performances. Uh, there was it just everyone kind of just wanted it to be over, really. Um, we went to to Wembley as part of uh, the FA's 150th anniversary and drew one all. Um, Shane Long scored a really good goal early in the game, and I uh, I was at it. And they uh, this, we were in a section that was for England and Irish fans. And as soon as the goal went in, uh, Stewart saw us and hauled us out, and we were brought down to the Irish section. Like there was no trouble at the game, and I want to emphasize that point. There was absolutely no trouble at the game, but we did ask the steward had anything happened and he said no but we're not taking any chances so fair enough <laughs> very good um, yeah but uh, yeah even thinking back at that Austria game uh, Joe I mean John Walters you know he scored the two goals but did you not get a sense in the second half there was a bit of an inevitability about it you know we got more and more defensively into our shell the the lack of attacking kind of ambition in the side again. It just seemed to me it was just ultra cautious and then you could even sense the crowd. The crowd was literally, you know, hoping upon hope that we'd get you know, get that third goal and Shane Long's chance, yeah. But I for me the the reaction of the Austrian players after David Alba scored in injury time, it was huge. I mean it was such a body blow to the qualification campaign after such a great result in Sweden, by the way. You know, yeah. on on yeah, it was a it was a kind of a very competent performance. I mean, defensively well organized, really did cancel out Sweden. Um and you know, the first half particularly um of the Austrian game was very positive as well, two goals being scored, but that that equalizer again, you know, any sort of momentum that was being built from the the one all draw against England even the Republic of Ireland game against Poland 2-0, it just, it just fell completely flat on its face again after that Austrian equaliser so late. I mean, and, you know, the rest is his history. Yeah. Well, Trapadoni would stay on for another uh, eight or six games, but the last two games, the last, if I look at the last uh, even uh, four games, we lost a friendly against Spain in uh in New York. Um we drew at Wales in a an August friendly that was the most August international friendlies of August international friendlies. Um and then two games back to back. Uh Sweden uh we lost at home against Sweden and then went to Austria and lost and that was where out the the announcement was made the next day, I think it might have been two days later. That Trapattoni had decided to to be mutually uh, mutually agreed to to step down as as Ireland manager. I think what Trapattoni brought to the side that what we were looking for was that he made us hard to beat. We didn't lose the teams that were ranked below us. Uh, ironically enough, until that game in Austria, they were the first 
lowest or the first team that beat us in a competitive game that were ranked lower than we were. But we definitely looked outclassed when we played teams ranked ahead of us. His legacy will probably be defensive organization. And I think to a certain extent we, we were, we, we kept that, but it's getting, it got to the point where it was almost strangling the rest of the team. You know, it was don't concede became more important than not necessarily more important than scoring, but even more important than trying to score or trying to create. You know, a nil-nil or a one-one is always better than a one-nil loss. Uh, what did like? How do you think his reign at the end? His reign ended, and what do you think his legacy will be? I suppose take his legacy. Let's see where he started from uh, when he took over this job. That five-two defeat that we've talked to earlier in Nicosia. It lived long in the memory for all the wrong reasons. You know, when you consider the inexperience of Steve Staunton, he was supposed to be assisted by Bobby Robson. That lack of inexperience in the international level was really exposed uh, during that 2007 campaign. So when Trapattoni came in, he was brought in for his experience, his complete kind of experience, you know, from club football. And to be fair to him, um, you know, he did deliver on the experience part. He, he realised that defensively we had to be solid. We had to be very hard to beat. And maybe a, a qualification campaign too, uh, too, too late for him, really. I suppose if we'd qualified for um, the World Cup uh, in 2010, then, yeah, definitely the 2012 would have been a nice little kind of arrivederci. But... It just felt that the tactics, everything was a little bit same, same old, and I think teams really got to kind of suss themselves very quickly, particularly in that 2012 qualification. And it's unfortunate because, you know, I did like Trapattoni, you know, when he came in, there was kind of an air of freshness about the place, you know, an awful lot of optimism, but uh, the end was, you know, pretty brutal and clinical. So I think there's going to be high points from this Trapattoni era, but obviously, you know, the inhibition, the, you know, the reluctance to change tactics, you know, he was very, very loyal, almost too loyal to a point to his core group of players as well. Um, would be he's probably his um, uh, characteristics of his era, Joe, I would think, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, with the end when it comes from, for especially for Irish international managers, uh, I think a criticism that could be levelled against a lot of them is that they stay on for one, one qualifying campaign too many. And I think it was definitely the case with Trapattoni. You know, if we go back to before Euro 2012, he was awarded a new contract after the qualifiers, but before the tournament itself had started. And I can understand why that was done. You know, if they hadn't uh, given him a new contract, then he could have been snapped up by a club side. Um, and, you know, and then they'd look, they'd look foolish because they'd have to bring in a new manager before the tournament started. Uh, and I know, you know, hindsight is 50-50 and, or hindsight is, is 20-20 rather. Um, but it might have been a, a better idea to just extend his contract by six months with a review after the end of the tournament. Um, I think, yeah, yeah, I, I, like yourself, I did like him. He was a, I think he was a likable person. Um, which is, you know, increasingly rare in football. Um, he, you know, I, some of the criticisms that I think he was given was unwarranted. You know, the, he used to get a lot of criticism because he didn't speak English. But you know, he was a man in his late sixties learning uh, a new language. You know, he was never going to be fluent in English. Um, and I think picking that was was petty in the extreme. Um, you know, there were some, there was a lot of of highs under his reign. The you know getting to the playoff in against France again. You know, he took over a side. And in twelve, in a year and a half, I turned them around from as you know, we keep going back to the loss in Cyprus, to you know, two games away from a World Cup. You know, we qualified for Euro twenty twelve. Whatever about the actual tournament itself, that qualification was a massive boost, um, not just for the team, but it kind of felt like for, a little bit for like for the country as well. 
Um, and, you know, how much of, you know, the tactics in the football were not, re- you know, they're down to the manager, but they're also, it's also a little bit about the players that he picked. And if those are the players that were available to him, you know, maybe it says a lot about the the skill set that was being developed by the FAI in their, their youth setup at the time. Like, none of them were bad players, but there was very few of them that were outstanding. Um, and I always got the impression that when we played a team like Sweden, who have Zlatan, like Austria, who had Alaba, that we would struggle against, not just, not, maybe not struggle against the team, but struggle against that player, you know? Uh, Germany and Spain and, and Italy have a team of that, of that player. But it just, it seemed like a very long time, and, you know, maybe it still hasn't happened that we haven't produced someone like that. Yeah, indeed. And I think when Trapattoni was coming into the job with Marco Tardelli as well, there's probably a sense of looking at the underage results in recent years, and to be honest, the, the underage results back then were pretty poor. So I don't think there was much credence from Trapattoni. I think he just literally was focused on consolidating what squad was there and working with them. Um, again, pretty much a results business from Trapattoni's perspective. I don't think he was long-term interested in setting up any grassroots. It was really in justifying the means here to get the team successful and for his managerial resume to uh, uh, be increased. So much so that, you know, he preempted John Delaney and the FAI to give the contract extension before that 2012 tournament. I mean, there were some rumblings that some Syria, some continental, even international teams were on the lookout for Trapattoni after the performances with the Republic. So, again, you have to give his management great credit or his agent great credit there because uh, the FEI kind of jumped on it before that tournament and unfortunately lived to pay the consequences long term. But, uh, again, you know, I did like the man and, you know, the cat is in the bag. I still have the T-shirt, I think, from Pennies or somewhere like that on the lead up to 2012. Uh, it does make me smile, really. Um, you know, particularly, you know, his interviews, particularly when they won Republic or got a nice result, he'd have some broken English. But then when the result was pretty bad or the performance, particularly in Kazakhstan, uh, yeah, uh, back to the interpreter uh, to relay the message to Tony O'Donoghue. So, yeah, there were some various nice TV moments there, particularly in the Trapatoni era. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I think like the majority of uh, of Irish managerial appointments, we're going to have to finish on a low note. Um, so we failed to qualify for the World Cup in 2014. The last two games uh, was a loss to Germany uh, with Noel King in charge. He's been... Uh, Brought up from the the under twenty ones, where to be fair, he had he had they had been playing good football, and, and before that, he was in charge of the the women's uh, senior international side. And finally, his last uh, the last game in the qualifiers, a dead rubber against against Kazakhstan, finished three one that no one really cared about. Um, so we'll we'll leave things there. So that brings us up to. Uh, 2013. So, in our next episode, uh, we're going to cover the manager that took over from Giovanni Trapattoni and his assistants. That's Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane. In case you need to be reminded, uh, we're going to talk about qualifying for your 2016, the actual tournament itself, and then the World Cup qualification campaign for 2018 uh, and how that ended, uh, as well as the UEFA Nations League. I'd like to thank Mark uh, from Hawkeye Psychic. You can follow him on Twitter at Hawkeye Psychic or read his uh, very information, very information-driven blogs on HawkeyePsychic.com. I've been Joseph McCarthy from Irish Abroad. You can follow me on Twitter at Irish underscore Abroad or just read my blog on Irish-Abroad.AppSpot.com. Okay, we'll talk to you soon.